the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Situation Report. This is the show where we give you the information you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. One of the areas that culture is consistently changing all around us. I don't think I need to make this point. You see it happening. Is on the issue of gender and, in particular, masculinity, what it means to be a man. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. My name is Jeremy Stolnicker. I am your host today. Glad to share this time with you, and I trust that this will be a helpful conversation. As we look at the world around us, we could bring it into our own culture. We could then bring it into our own communities. Uh, We have to acknowledge that an understanding of manhood, of masculinity, of gender roles more broadly, that those definitions are changing. Now, uh, the facts around those are not changing. What is (laughs) is, <laughs> but how we view those and how culture interacts with gender has certainly changed, and uh, man, it's become very, very confusing. I, I would say for those who are raising children, this is a difficult time to raise boys and girls to be men and women, and yet we need to do that so that they can do what they were created to do so that society and our culture will benefit. And I'm very grateful today to have on um, a wonderful guest to help kind of break this down, help understand this topic, and uh, looking forward to this conversation that I know will be a help to you. Our guest today is Josh Hammer. Our guest today is Josh Hammer. Josh is an opinion editor at Newsweek, research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation, a syndicated columnist. And uh, I, I was just telling Josh a minute ago, uh, I love his commentary. It's, it's very clear. It's very thoughtful and uh, very grateful, Josh, to have you on with me today. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's great to be with you. So let's, uh, let's start for those that, that may not know you or your story. Tell us a little bit about yourself. And um, it, it's funny, I, I, I read a lot of bios and I mean, a lot of people do, but we read things like opinion editor, research fellow, syndicated columnist. <laughs> that means something right. to a lot of people, but not right, to other right, people. Right. So give us a, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, like a lot of people probably hear like opinion editor of Newsweek and they're probably thinking to themselves like, Jeremy, like who the heck is like this liberal like you're bringing on the podcast, <laughs> right? Um, no, I assure you, I, I assure the conservatives listening and watching that I, I am one of you. I, I have come up through the ranks of this, of the, of this movement very much up. So I'm actually I'm actually a lawyer by background. Uh, to this yeah. day, that kind of is like my bread and butter. I still kind of give law school lunch talks uh, mm-hmm. for, for the Federal Society. I spoke at the Federal Society's National Convention in D.C. last month. So that's very awesome. much some of my, my, my some of my bread and butter. But you know, I have kind of entered kind of the ranks, also kind of just like general conservative commentary. I used to work for Ben Shapiro at the Daily Wire. Ben and I are still friends. But so I, I currently run the op-ed section of Newsweek, write a weekly syndicated column, co-host two podcasts, one of which I do for Newsweek, the other of which yeah. I do for the for the Edmund Burke Foundation, where I'm a research fellow. And I, you know, I kind of also just travel to give a lot of these talks still for the Federal Society, for ISI, yeah, just well, anyone, anyone who will have me basically try and preach, <laughs> preach the good word, basically. But uh, it's great. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it's great to meet a lawyer who is still willing to tell people that they're an attorney. That's uh, that's something you don't find very often. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I, I mean, look, I'm, st- I'm still borrowed technically yeah. in, the state, in the great state of Texas where I used to live. I live in Miami, Florida right now. Uh, I'm, I'm recording this from D.C., but I, I live in Miami right now. I, I used to live in Texas. So I'm, so I'm still borrowed technically, but I don't really do a whole lot of legal yeah. practice day to day. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, someone's got to do the dirty work, right? Yeah, that's right. My sister's an attorney, and uh, I'm always telling her, don't lead with that. Lead with something else because <laughs> that's going to turn people off. Uh, man, it's awesome, though. Um, you, you write and speak on so many different things, and one of the topics that you have been addressing recently has been this topic of masculinity in the United States. Um, I, I just mentioned to you a minute ago that I have a, another podcast. I've been talking about manhood, and, and I led with the question a few weeks ago, where are the men? When we look at what's happening in our society, in our culture, we can blame a lot of people, but uh, I tend to blame um, Men, and more specifically, from my paradigm, men of faith, people who say they believe in truth but are unwilling to stand for truth. And we look around, and there is a real masculinity problem. Um, so if we can, let's, let's start there. Because when we talk about masculinity, the need for masculinity and, and manhood and those kind of things, it, it does presuppose that there is an issue. There is a problem. Uh, can you address the problem, the masculinity problem and its impact on our society? We'll start there and kind of, kind of work from that place. Yeah, so there's 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 obviously a lot to unpack here, right? Um, so specifically, well, you know, let's let's take a step back actually. So when I worked at the Daily Wire, when I worked for Ben Shapiro, you know, I, I would write my own kind of daily opinion column and do all sorts of other stuff. But one of the people that I had the pleasure of editing every day was my friend Matt Walsh, who I think oh, is yeah. still Daily yeah. Wire. Um, yeah. You know, Matt Matt is a great guy. First of all, he's a one, he's a wonderful dude and, a, a, and a children's one. author now. So we- yes, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's like the the Walrus book, I think. Yeah, right? something I don't know. I know he's talking yeah. about it a lot right now. Yeah, uh, genuinely good dude. But Matt writes prolifically on this issue, and I, I, I have I have, I have fond recollections when I was editing his daily column of, of him writing on this exact topic. And you know, the point that Matt would make over and over and over again is that, but with the whole kind of cultural milieu, okay, coming from kind of the great institutions uh, of, of of the secular left, university, the media, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, you know, we're all familiar with kind of this alphabet soup yeah. of kind of uh, this alphabet soup of wokery, if you will. Hmm. And they're basically just trying to, to tell us that manhood is inherently toxic and quote unquote toxic masculinity is a bad thing that has to be stamped out. And, you know, it's probably not a coincidence, obviously, that at the same time that the left has been preaching this over and over and over again, that you see kind of the rise, obviously, of modern gender ideology and the transgender movement and greater and greater percentages of confused teenagers, the likes of which Abigail Schreier has written about hmm. at great length openly identifying as transgender and things like that. But we've been told that masculinity and manhood in particular is a bad thing. Yeah. But, you know, Jimmy, I look back to World War II, okay? I look at that photo of the men who got off those boats at D-Day, yeah. who scaled at Omaha Beach in Normandy, looking at the top of that literal cliff with Nazi machine yeah. gunners plowing down at them knowing that there was a very damn good chance they would not that they would not survive that assault that was toxic masculinity that was that was manhood at its finest and that is what is ultimately capable of nourishing and sustaining a country because a country obviously is formed from churches and synagogues and families and things of that nature there and who do you need to actually anchor those institutions well by definition you need strong virtuous well-intentioned men so can masculinity be toxic? Of course it can. I, you know, Dan McLaughlin of National Review actually had a piece that came out earlier this week responding to my speech and Senator Hawley's speech at the National uh, Conservatism Conference. We're both we're talking about this a little bit here. 
And, you know, Dan's been a critic of mine in some ways, but this particular column is actually very insightful in National Review. And he basically said that the goal of society should be to be sculpting masculinity towards manhood. Mm. And I think that's actually an important mm. distinction because masculinity, it's true, does have some negative ramifications, of course. Men are obviously inherently more aggressive than women are, and that can manifest itself in very bad ways, obviously. Men commit more violent crimes and things of that nature. But the goal of society of the churches, the schools, all, all of our all of our kind of Tocquevillian meeting institutions yeah. should be to channel masculine energy and masculine passion and desire and aggression towards the virtues of manhood itself. And when when the secular wokesters are just condemning toxic masculinity, it's all they talk about, you're not going to get manhood. You're not going to get men. You're going to get feminized men who are incapable of leading families who will not stay married, who will not lead their churches, yeah. and ultimately will not serve their country. Yeah, that's good. Um, your Omaha Beach uh, story made me think about, you know, it was 20 years ago now, uh, almost 20 years ago, when we went into Iraq. I was uh, a platoon commander with 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. We were one of the battalions that breached the berm and, you know, hit various points along the way. The Battle of Baghdad was my battalion. And, and I, at the time, none of that seemed strange, but looking back on it, um, I was responsible for 80 Marines and a larger battalion of 1,200 Marines. I was 25 years old at the time, and most of the young men that, that I was responsible for were like 18, 19 years old. I had a 17-year-old in my platoon, and doing these very, very hard things. And uh, even the conversation around masculinity that's changed in that period of time is, is unbelievable. But there was an expectation when we did that, that not only because you're Marines, but because you're Americans, but more than that, because you're young men. And this is what men do. You stand up, you do the hard things, you push forward. And um, you're exactly right. That is the spirit or the attitude that built our country. We go back to our founding. We could go through the post-Civil War era, certainly after the 40s and into, you know, what we're dealing with today. Um, so important. And, and, and yet there are so many people trying to tear it down. I think one of the big challenges is a clear definition of not only masculinity, but manhood. Can you define some of those terms? When you talk about masculinity should lead to manhood, um, I agree with that. Um, how do we define those terms? I think there are a lot of young men who are very confused because the definitions they're being handed are from people that hate them <laughs> and, and hate even the conversation. How do we define those terms in ways that we can get our hands around? Sure, yeah, I'm happy to give my best shot. I mean, I, I, I should give a caveat here to the viewers and listeners. I'm, I'm not necessarily, it's a pure matter of my own biography, the best equipped to do this by sheer dint of the fact that I'm not married yet. Uh, but, 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 um, you know, but you are a man, so you have... <laughs> I, 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 I'm a man, and obviously, hopefully, I, you know, I, I, I figure that out and, and have uh, lots of children soon, of course. But um, look, masculinity entails certain defining traits, the same way that femininity has certain defined traits. So femininity, of course, some of the, some of the defining traits would be empathy, compassion, um, kind of a, a like a, a deep sense of being in touch with your emotions, right? I mean, there's a, a, a nurturing nature, mm. obviously, kind of it's a biologically inherent to the very fact of childbearing and child rearing. Those are kind of, those are kind of feminine virtues. The masculine virtues are largely complementary, obviously. I mean, all you need to do is read Genesis 127 to see mm. that men and, men and women were intended and indeed are complementary. So the masculine virtues are, um, kind, of, kind of like rattle off a few, are um, uh, our aggression and aggression can be a bad thing, but it also can be a very good thing again, right. and properly channeled. Right. 
um, a, a, a desire to kind of herd the flock and ultimately be a leader, kind of going back to kind of our, primor- our primordial instincts with, uh, with the caveman with the spears yeah. trying to kind of you know, get food and kind of tend to our family, um, to be a protector and defender. And ultimately, obviously, then to kind of ultimately lead in like the truest sense of the term lead. And, 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 and we leave, we can lead by properly channeling that aggression. We can lead by properly channeling that, that kind of competitiveness, that, that kind of like almost like, like athletic kind of a military style competitive instinct that I think men have that women don't have in a lot of ways. But again, a lot of this, if it's not properly channeled, can, can, right. can go off the rails. The same way that, that the feminine virtues can go off the rails too, of course. Um, I mean, it, 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 this this very much works both ways here. So, I guess if I kind of view, you know, my reading of history, I'm only 32 years old, but my reading of American history is such that largely kind of before I was born, okay, in like the first century, century and a half, the American Republic, it was well understood that again, whether it was the churches and the synagogues and the religious institutions, whether it was the schools, whether it was the universities, and whether it was kind of the political institutions themselves that they would all be trying to do what they could to take those inherently masculine traits and bring them to kind of man's ultimate purpose, which mm-hmm. which I kind of just say, I guess what, what my personal understanding of that is, which of course is to kind of marry, to have children, right. to raise a family, right. to be a virtuous kind of a protective role model and defender of your bedrock unit, of the nuclear family mm-hmm. unit. And then ultimately, of course, kind of take that virtue and then ultimately apply it into some sort of kind of public facing area, um, uh, you know, to kind of ultimately help the betterment of society, but really kind of focusing on that family structural, you know, that really is kind of masculinity kind of taken to its most virtuous conclusion. I, I obviously what you're, what you're talking about in Baghdad and all my, and what I was saying in Omaha Beach, that's just, that's kind of just a different manifestation of that, right? It's kind of right. looking after a different type of flock, um, but really kind of just hurting to your own flock and kind of leading that flock, I guess would be kind of my definition of kind of taking masculinity to its most virtuous manhood form. Yeah, yeah that's great. Um, we had this uh, secularization, I guess we'll call it, of society. I don't know if I use that word right, but uh, the secularizing of society. So stepping away from churches and synagogues and you know houses of faith. And that has had a real impact, too. We don't like absolute definitions anymore for whatever reason. Uh, how, do you, how do you see or how do you connect faith with our understanding of masculinity and manhood? I mean, you really can't disentangle the two, right? right? I, mean, I mean, like anyone who's, any, any, anyone who's read the Bible sees, you know, any number of, of, of great manly masculine heroes. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm Jewish, so when I read kind of the Hebrew scriptures, you know, the, right. the Torah is what we would call the five books of Moses in particular. There's any number of great, of brilliant examples right in there. Obviously, the New Testament has any number of examples as, as, as well. So, I look, I mean, when you, when you secularize the culture, okay, and we have gone through a dramatic secularization in American society over the past 67 years. Yeah. Really, a lot, a lot of this goes off the rails, by the way. Um, I, I'm actually intending to write an essay on this exact topic. I, I, I need to get started on that very soon. A lot of this really starts to go off the rails and kind of somewhat obscure, if I can kind of put my lawyer hat on. Yeah. A lot of this starts to go off the rails in an obscure 1947 case called Everson. Hmm. Everson was the first time that the language of separation and church and state actually made its way into a Supreme Court opinion. You know, as, as anyone who's read the first opinion, can t- first amendment, excuse me, can tell you, the language of separation of church and state is nowhere to be found. Right. Right. The, right. The, the language is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. By the way, what that actually meant was literally that Congress can't do it, therefore the states can do it. Um, mm. Totally, they, we've totally boxed me in there. But you know, within 15 years of, of, the, of the Everson decision, 1947, 
you know, the Bibles were being banned from schools, school prayer was banned. And, you know, as my Edmund Burke Foundation colleague, uh, Yarm Hazoni says over and over again, it, it took us roughly 60 years. It took us roughly two to three generations from the Bibles being banned in schools to literally not knowing how many genders exist. Yeah, um, it seems to me like a pretty direct correlation, right? right? right. Um, I, I mean, you, you really can't disentangle it too. So when you kind of take the Bible, when you take Judaism, Christianity, kind of public religiosity of the Abrahamic faiths in general out of the public square here, you necessarily lose an appreciation of what I alluded to earlier of, of Genesis 127. God created man and woman in his own image. You go, you, you've forgotten Adam and Eve in the garden. You've forgotten, you've forgotten all of that here. So what does it even mean to be a man if you lose any sense of capital T truth and understanding as to where these defined definite yeah. forms of man and woman are coming then? Well, I guess some people would say like you still have like different like physically observable traits, you know, bodies are shaped differently, genitalia, whatever. But, you know, we, we've gotten to the point now with, with the medical quote unquote science, and I use a scare quotes liberally, where we're even trying to change that. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, like, unless you lose again, like this transcendental understanding as to where the distinct masculine and feminine forms are coming from there, you really, I think, risk it all going off the rails. Yeah. And we've seen that play out in real time, tragically. Many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. We've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. What's crazy, and this is something we've seen very sadly from from my perspective, is churches, pastors, leaders of uh, religious organizations going along with so much of what we might, you know, broadly call woke culture and some of these social ideologies, and particularly with with COVID and all the stuff we're dealing with right now, it's it's been crazy to see. And, and why that's important is because of exactly what you just said. You can't disentangle these ideas. And so if those who do hold on to the truth and understand that there is a creator, and if there is a creator, then he has a purpose for us. He created us with, you know, with intention, with purpose. If that's the case, then we need to start there. And those ideas about society, culture, masculinity, government, all of that needs to flow from there. It's almost like we flipped this upside down and said, well, if you need church, if you need the Bible, if you need that, that's okay. But it all starts over here. And we need to get back to, it starts with faith and and flows from there. Is that an accurate understanding? And if so, then how do we get back there? (laughs) How do we get to that place? Yeah, man. I mean, that look, that that latter question is kind of the million dollar question, right? I mean, if we could solve that, we would solve basically all, not maybe not all, but we'd solve sure. a, a, a good chunk, maybe even like the vast majority of, of society's right. woes. I mean, like I wrote a column like towards the beginning of COVID. I mean, almost, I guess like literally over a year and a half ago now. It's crazy. I think that the pandemic has been going sure. on that long. But yeah. I, I, I wrote a column. Two like, weeks to stop the spread. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Holy moly. Yeah. I, I mean, I wrote a column back in like April 2020, I guess it was, basically saying like, you know, if 
we don't get a like a, a new great awakening right now. We are in for like some deep crap. And traditionally, like pandemics, you know, droughts, famines, yeah. it's actually historically actually all of the kind of um, tragic events that do inspire a people to kind of have like a religious great awakening. Where that's kind of that's kind of the hook for me to write that comic mm-hmm. time. So I really think that would go a long way towards solving a lot of our problems right now. But you know, look, short of that. Um, we need to even if even if a diminishing percentage of the public body still goes to church every Sunday, even if a diminishing percentage of the body still identifies as Christian, we've all heard about the rise of the so-called nuns. You know, yeah, like, right, N O N E S, not U N S. Catholics get really excited when they hear that, but it's not the same thing. Right? No, different concept. I guess relate a little bit, but but different different concept, right? So, like the rise of the proverbial nuns in the in in the Pew and Gallup surveys here. We can still address that on, a, on its own merits while simultaneously understanding that we have to do something in the public square, on the public sphere, to try to inject these values here. So mm. you know, to kind of just use like a term, like somewhat provocative term, admittedly, that I, that, that I um, use, and I haven't really kind of uh, explained or explicated it at great length, but I did introduce it in my speech at the National Conservative Commerce last month, is I use the phrase uh, ecumenical integralism, which sounds like a mouthful, mm. but, you know, some of our kind of like very traditional Catholic friends, I'm very good friends with these people, so, so, you know, some folks like Sorba Mari, who's a dear friend of mine, they have talked a lot about Catholic integralism, by which they mean kind of like the um, the, the real imbuing of, of the body politic um, with a certain strand of like heavily uh, Thomist, Aquinas-inspired Catholicism. So... I look at the American founding as effectively being what I would call ecumenical integralism, not Catholic integralism, but kind of like an ecumenical pan-Christian imbuing of public morality into the body politic. You go back and you read your George Washington. If you go back and read what he wrote in, in a Thanksgiving Day proclamation in, yeah. in, in October yeah. of 1789, it is devoutly, overtly, and forthrightly religious okay right. like they they understood their public duties and what they were doing up there like when they took that constitutional oath they knew exactly who they were taking an oath to um and it was not some secular authority it was not some flying spaghetti monster it was it was it, it, was, it was god and they they, right. they knew they, they knew exactly what they were doing there so we, even if we have this rise of the nuns i think that like what people of faith have to do in particular is try to make just common cause with even some more liberal type, not not the wokesters, they're a lost cause, but like some more kind of moderate, somewhat centrist sounding liberal types. And, you know, I, I have many friends who fit this description, right? I think what a lot of us do, who are at least amenable to the notion of even if they are not necessarily like the most God-fearing or devout of individuals, that this thing risks going off the rails, this whole project, unless Correct. you have yeah. some grounding set. So to give you like one concrete example of that, actually, you know, Dave Rubin, who's, who's become a buddy of mine, Dave's a great example of this. I, mean, I had Dave on my Newsweek podcast recently. I went on his Rubin Report podcast last week. Dave himself, um, uh, you know, well, he's open on the gay, first of all. And I, Dave, he's not, he, he would not call himself an atheist. I mean, he, he's, he, he, he's a believer, but he's not, uh, he, he, he's not like an Orthodox Jew. I mean, he, he, right. he's some sort of kind of middle ground Jew. But he, he repeatedly says that he agrees with Miami Burke Foundation colleague, Yoram Hazoni, and I guess by extension with me, that yeah. if you totally take the Bibles and like any sense of like morality and virtue of the public sphere, you're going to re- re- get to a crazy spot. And that's where we've gotten with the critical phrase theory, the gender ideology, the, all the stuff that Abigail Schreier hasn't covered in, in, mm. in, that, in, in that 
just eye-opening book that she put out a, a year or two ago. So we, we, we've got to do something here. And yeah. that, that, that's going to require some like strange new bedfellows, some folks like us making common cause with some uh, liberals who, again, are like woke skeptical. But something has to happen. Yeah, that's good. I, I think just asking the question, where does freedom come from? Where does our individual autonomy come from? The Declaration right. of Independence right. declared this that it's given to us by God. That's not something issued by the government. Even if we can get back to that place, understanding our view of the Creator, our view of God may be different, our understanding of who He is and what that means may be different. But freedom is only real. It it only matters if it wasn't given to us by the government. Otherwise, um, you know, it's Russia. I'm reading a book right now about post-World War II, uh, Russian encroachment into Germany and all that went along with that. And uh, why not? Why not? If there's no God who has given us, imbued us with those rights, then then anything's on the table. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. That's the tipping point. That's the hinge we're kind of swinging back and forth on right now. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that, okay? I mean, look, I, I mean, to kind of name a few prominent examples, obviously. I mean, most of like the most horrific regimes of the past century, whether it's Leninist, Stalinist Russia, whether it's the Third Reich in, in Germany, obviously. Yeah. These are not exactly kind of um, God fearing regimes, right. like, <laughs> right. like, to, like to put to put it mildly. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess the, the the cynics and the critics of that would then point to regimes like um, you know like, like Iran sure. and say, well, sure, they, sure. well, they have, well, they are theocratic. You know, I, separate subject. Okay, well, I guess like, right. like, let's hold like um, Islamist interpretations of Islam aside, obviously. Sure. But focus, but, but but focusing on like broader Christendom in particular here. You know, the most horrific regimes were oftentimes like the most uh, avowedly atheist or godless ones. That's right. And th- that, 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 that's not an accident, of course, right? Um, you know, uh, I, I mean, Abraham Lincoln, you know, he, he's my favorite figure in American history. I, I, I love his political statesmanship, his, his jurisprudence. I, I kind of would just kind of admire them. He... Yeah, and and he he fought it. He fought a bloody war. Obviously, I mean, in, you know, in my judgment, that war was just and ultimately necessary. But he did fight a bloody war. But when he spoke in terms of how he was justifying it, he was justifying it on exactly the grounds that you're talking about here. I mean, Lincoln was a he was a devotee of the Declaration of Independence. He yeah. famously said that uh, he famously said that the Constitution is but a frame of silver surrounding the apple of gold that is the Declaration of Independence. Wow. And yeah. he really, he really, he really used that as his lodestar, as kind of his guiding lamppost mm. to, um, you know, to consolidate and save the Union and to eradicate the moral horror of uh, antebellum slavery. Yeah. And he wouldn't have been able to do that, I think, if he weren't a biblically literate statesman who was familiar with kind of the antecedent principles mm-hmm. and the notion of capital T truth that could then lead one to read the Declaration of Independence and understand that its claims are manifestly true. And to your point, also, pragmatically speaking, necessary, in, right. in addition to being true, necessary right. for staving off like the worst manifestations of human evil that could possibly be yeah. brought to the space of the earth. What's interesting, too, about Lincoln is you know, the debate over federalism, we could talk about states' rights versus the federal government. I don't know if he got that right, but he allowed that, what he understood about God and human autonomy and freedom to guide him, <laughs> not the political discussion around everything else that was happening. And if we could get back to that place, a lot of these other issues we're dealing with would, would fall away, um, I think probably very quickly. When we talk about manhood and masculinity, um, 
Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot, obviously, and he always ties personal responsibility to that. And I think we see, uh, really, there is <laughs> very little personal responsibility in our culture, and our society. Um, how do you make that connection with just being you know, personally responsible and then standing up as a man and being, you know, being a man and masculinity, that conversation? So Jordan Peterson, you know, I, 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 I've read some of his stuff. I, mean, I, I can't say in my, I, I'm a devotee of his work, but I sure. know that one of the things that, that he is most known for is basically saying if you, you start every day by making your bed. Right. I mean, that's one of his, that's one of his big lines. When saying. Right. So we really kind of start your day by taking care of, of your immediate confines. Don't live in like a slobbering cesspool. Yeah. You know, do the dishes, clean right. your house, be, right. be presentable to public here. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you are never going to be capable of marrying, of raising children, of kind of being kind of a provider, a shepherd of the flock unless you were taking care of yourself. And by the way, that's like aesthetic too, by the way. I mean, like I, I, in my mind, that's kind of closely correlated with, with the rise of this kind of like new sect of the right that's like very into like weightlifting and kind of going yeah. to the gym. Like these things are deeply correlated with one another, mm, right? Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you have to be like a, like a gym. So it's so, so, so like Dave Riaboy is a good friend of mine. Dave's on, yeah. Dave's on, yeah. Dave's on, Dave's on Twitter. I mean, Dave's biceps are probably bigger yeah. than my thighs. I mean, like <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I am, I am not, I, to be clear, like, I don't cry. I do not yeah. do anything remotely like that. Yeah. But like, don't be like a fat slob. Okay. Right. And like, even that is like, a, is like, I, I understand that's like an anti PC, like controversial thing sure. it is. But like, I mean, like, I, at a very like visceral level, surely, if you are not capable of preventing yourself from becoming obese, and obviously kind of uh, appetite and desire for food is like obviously one of like the great kind of biological passions that like traditional virtuous men have been able to tame along with all the other passions, right. sexual and all that. If you're not able to tame like that literal passion for obesity and to engorge yourself, you'll never be able to kind of, um, you know, be a, a, a role model for anyone else, yeah. right? So um, I think what Jordan Peterson's kind of touching on that theme, which I think he does often, he's, he's totally on the right track for yeah. sure. Yeah, personal responsibility and I think that there are, we use the phrase sometimes, or what I do when I'm talking about this, um, uh, boys who can shave. So we have a lot of boys who can shave in our society. They are men biologically, physically, but they're just boys. There is no responsibility, and that's what separates them. Um, yeah, it's funny you, you bring up Dave Reboy. I, I interviewed him um, a little while ago. Yeah, when he came on, I was like, holy cow. I had no idea uh, how, <laughs> just how large he is, right? Um <laughs> Dave, Dave's actually a very good personal friend. We, we, we both live in Miami now, and we actually, yeah. funny quick story, we, there, like eight or eight or nine of us got barbecue in a Surfside in, in, in Miami back in like September, right after I moved there. <laughs> and I sat next to Dave this dinner, and he walks through with this like massive jug of like pro, like protein <laughs> shake mixer and like a gallon of right. water and like orders like three plates of brisket. I mean, like he, he's, a, he's, he's taking the gym thing to next level. Like, <laughs> you, you, you do not have to do that much just dial it back a little bit yeah he, yeah he's awesome what's funny about him is he is that but he's also so thoughtful i mean i had an incredible interview with him and uh it was awesome but um yeah and i hadn't made that connection but we, i uh i'm i'm pretty into uh running and uh, particularly trail running and you know long distance running um these ultra marathon distances and so my social media feed is a lot of that, right? And one, one thing I've seen recently, some of the larger accounts have started to put pictures, images of people who clearly could not finish a, you know, 50-mile race as kind of like, it's okay, we're not going to body shame, anyone can do this. And it, first of all, it's not true, 
I mean, I work very, very hard to be, you know, very, very average. <laughs> People who are uh, really leading in that area are, are very devoted to taking care of themselves. But what's crazy about that, my, my point is, even in the fitness world where you wouldn't expect to see that, this pervasive, you don't really need to take care of yourself, you're included too, everyone's okay, kind of the uh, participation trophy thing. It's, it's permeated just about every area of our society until someone's willing to stand up and say, no, be responsible, make your bed, you know, do the things that you just talked about. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's everywhere. No, I, I mean, it is everywhere. Look, a lot of this ultimately comes back, obviously, to the rise of kind of fatherless households. I mean, like, so the problem almost becomes kind of circular in a sense, right? I mean, when men, when men specifically oftentimes, when they grow up in a household without like a, a, a strong male role model, yeah. Um, you know that's not that, that's, that's a situation that does not end well again because because the right. the masculine traits are capable of going off the rails. I mean the left's problem is that the that the left and kind of the wokesters they they solely focus on those traits going off the rails when in reality of course we should focus on trying to channel those traits towards virtuous Correct. ends. Correct. Um, but they are capable of going really really poorly off the rails here and probably honestly like the easiest way to prevent kind of those masculine traits from going off the rails and the easy way to channel those traits in a virtuous direction towards manhood towards marriage toward toward child rearing is itself to have more married men i mean look i mean you know daniel patrick moynihan um you know the, the former senator from new york uh, u.s ambassador to the u.n Back in the 1960s, um, you know, if you talk about kind of the crisis of the, of the Black American family, I think at that time mm-hmm. the the out of wedlock childbirth um, rate in, in in Black households was roughly 40. percent The number of the exact number is roughly 40. Wow. percent You know, that that number now, if I'm not mistaken, is like roughly 70. percent um, it, it might even be just slightly higher than that. Yeah. And by the way, that that's obviously not just a problem for the Black community. I mean, I mean, I, I I'm sure the the rate for White Americans is, is horrible as well here, but that really that kind of really is the root of so much of the underlying violence that we see in America's cities of kind of these teenagers joining gangs of these drive-by killings, the, obviously kind of like the, the dramatic escalation of violent crime that's accompanied the 1619 riots since, since George Floyd was killed. All of this, not all of this, but a lot of this from my perspective does stem from the lack of strong male role models right. in the house. So in, so in that sense, the problem actually becomes kind of circular, right? Um, because kind of like the solution becomes kind of the problem in the first place, which is the lack of yep. good men. Um, but at a bare minimum, my very modest proposal is that we stop just bashing masculinity qua masculinity and instead, and instead focus on turning masculinity into manhood properly yep. realized. That's fantastic. Um, Man, what a great perspective. So then the question that that begs is understanding in the circular sense that the, the problem is the, <laughs> however you just said that, the cause is the problem, or it, it, it's very circular, right? Um, why then, seeing the consequence of a lack of manhood, does the left hate masculine, hate masculinity and hate manhood so much? Why has this become a political left versus right issue? Well, they just fundamentally don't see it the way that we see it, right? So let's take on the, the example that I was just talking about of like rising violent crime in sixty nineteen riots. Yep. I mean, they see that and they don't they, they don't see what I just said. I mean, they categorically reject that any of this has to do with the lack of strong households yeah. or, 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 or or lack of fathers in the home. I mean, what they see that is that you know they see a lot of lot of rising violent crime in the inner cities, um, a, a 
disproportionately high percentage, which of course is committed um, by Black and Hispanic Americans. And they see that and they say that, oh, America is systemically racist because of you know, poverty and right. lack of access to economic right. advancement. I mean, they just, you know, we live in two different universes. Like we see the problem and, or, or, or we see the results of the problem. And then we, we could, we arrive at completely different conclusions mm, as right. to, as to the source of that problem here. So I think they're just like not seeing it the way that you and I are seeing it. I mean, I assume, you know, I assume these same people would kind of take what I said earlier about 60 years between the Bibles being banned from the schools and not knowing how many genders there are. And they would like literally roll their eyes. I mean, but to me, that just, that's just like makes right. common sense, obviously. Right. Like it yeah. just, it's it just totally intuitive, but um, I, you know, uh, it really does feel like we live in two different universes from each yeah. other sometimes. I mean, look, I, I, I don't, I don't want to overstate my case here, okay? I'm sure there are some, there definitely are some well-intentioned left-of-center folks who understand that men not being around sure. for when the yeah, child sure. is born is a, is a problem. Sure. They probably, A, would not be willing to say that it is as big a problem as folks like you and I would. would, would. And two, on the other hand, they're not exactly going to prioritize fixing yeah. it as a matter of public policy either. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. You look at gun violence. Um, Kalyan Noir, who talks about this all the time, yeah. um, he he breaks that down. I mean, there there are real numbers. It's it's math um, of the yeah. number of violent crimes committed with a gun, which is what he focuses on, and the number of fatherless homes. And yet, and that's what makes this whole like alternative universe thing. Because you're exactly right. It's like we're living in two different worlds. It, it, it's so crazy to me because there are actual there is actual data. That supports exactly what you're saying, and yet we we choose apparently to overlook it, which is crazy. It's sad, right? I mean, um, the Kyle Rittenhouse story, by the way, is is it's actually a great example of that, which has a, which has actually its own kind of interesting twist on masculinity and manhood. But kind of even even holding that aside, yeah. Like I, you know, I saw that, and like I mean, I when I watch the not guilty verdict and I right. watch Rittenhouse's reaction to it. I mean, I got chills on my spine. Yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 I haven't been that happy right. for a verdict in, in, in a long time. And then, like, the day or two after that, I saw, like, the NBA release some statement about, like, systemic racism. I'm like, like what yeah. – do we do we live on the same planet? Right. Like, do, like, do, like right. did you guys watch what I said? Did you read the underlying fact pattern? Like, do you see, did you see the videos that I saw Real there? videos of real people. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, so some of these talking points just come – I, I mean, like, what what they do a lot of times is they, is they take a prepackaged conclusion, and then they will kind of retcon. They will then go backwards yeah. and retroactively fit the quote unquote facts to justify right. arriving right. at that pre chosen conclusion. Yeah. It, it, it's it's really tragic stuff, honestly. And I guess the way forward then for us, you know, kind of bringing it to a what do we do now is to focus on the people that we can influence to raise our kids, yes. as you mentioned, get married, have kids, raise those kids right, teach those kids what truth is and how to stand for truth and influence those that we can. And, and you know, you hopefully over time we'll, we'll bring some other folks into the fold. And that's- yeah, and, and, and the other thing that I would add to that, and I said this on um, the NatCon Squad po- podcast, the one to the Edmund Foundation that I co-host every week, we say this all the time, is one thing that I that, that I would encourage people is to really try to pay less attention to what's happening in Washington D.C. So I'm, mm, I'm in D.C. right now, yeah. obviously. I mean, like I, I personally, look, I, I run the op-ed section for a major media publication. I mean, this is this, this has become more or less my life, for better or for worse. I mean, I'm sure. not sure my doctor, my, you know, my blood pressure, <laughs> all that. But, all, but, but for, for, for better or for worse, you know, as um, 
you know, as uh, as as Meyer Lansky's character says in Godfather Part Two, right? I mean, uh, or, or Hyman Roth's character's name, like this is the life we've chosen. So I've chosen mm-hmm. that. I've chosen that life. Yeah. But most people have not chosen that life, and God bless you, shouldn't. And if that is the case, just just try to tune it out, okay? To the extent that you want to get involved in kind of in, in political issues, and I yep. certainly do not discourage that. But try to make it more local, you know, like running for That's school good. boards. And like the, the, the critical race theory issue shows how important the local actually is because those right. issues are not going to get dictated from Washington, mm. D.C. Those issues are kind of grassroots on the way up here. And the parent uprisings have had real meaningful impacts, obviously, right. as, we saw in, as we saw in Virginia, as we almost saw in New Jersey. So to the extent that you want to focus on the political, try to make it local. But yes, at the end of the day, the best way to change hearts and minds in this country remains not necessarily going on Fox News, not necessarily mm-hmm. publishing op-eds, and I say that as an op-ed editor, right? The best way to do that is to go to like your church, go to your synagogue, go to like a, wherever the local bar, whatever the bowling bowling club, who cares? Where people and have other, like, yeah. yeah, go have like real face-to-face conversations. That is ultimately how you change the culture in a much more kind of impactful sense than kind of typing and speaking into the abyss. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, Josh Hammer, where can people follow the work that you do? Uh, you do a lot of work in a lot of places. Where would you like for people to follow you? Yeah, so I'm kind of a little all, all over the map. I mean, the, kind of the easiest place to go is twitter.com slash, uh, my Twitter handle is Josh underscore Hammer. So that would awesome. be the easiest place to go. Uh, my Facebook page is facebook.com slash real Josh Hammer, I think it is, but I, I tweet a decent amount. So Twitter's the easiest place, I would say. Awesome. Josh, man, I really appreciate your time. Hopefully we can do this again. We'd love to. Yes, sir. Thank you. I so appreciate Josh's perspective, uh, his ability to articulate these big issues and go back historically and help us to understand the context historically, where we have been, where we are, where we're headed. Uh, So appreciate it and uh, very grateful for his voice. Please follow his work, follow him, and continue to learn from him. He's on the cutting edge of this, and uh, that would be a great place for you to start really getting a hold of this and some other very important issues. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. If you have not yet, you can subscribe to this podcast, wherever it is you listen to podcasts from. You may have a favorite platform. Please make sure you are subscribed so that this automatically comes to you. If you don't have a favorite place, I'll give you a couple that you can go to. Go to the Salem Podcast Network. Uh, This show, of course, is on Salem. Salem Podcast Network, you can subscribe to this show there, other great podcasts as well on the network. And you can go watch the video of this, the uh, video version of this podcast on Salem now. And I trust that would be a help to you as well. Thank you again for watching. Look forward to talking to you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.